Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And now, battle ready with Father Dan Rehill. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. It's good to be with you. Back, uh, oh, less than a week ago, we had a uh, gospel that was the message of um, the unmerciful servant. I don't know if you remember that. And uh, very quickly, the story, the story is such that um, Peter uh, asks the question, how much should we forgive, Lord? Should it be uh, three times? Or did he say it? seven times? Seven times. So... Jesus responds, no, 70 times seven, meaning unlimited. Uh, and the t- at the time, the, in the Jewish law, it was written that God will forgive you three times, but on the fourth he may not, you know, for your transgressions. He, but Peter was coming forward saying, has seven, that's more than the scriptures even say. And Jesus corrects him and says, no, it's going to be unlimited, Peter. You're going to have to forgive over and over and over again. And so he then tells the story of this parable of uh, two servants, and one servant owed a very large debt to the king, and that's the New American Bible version, a large debt to the king. Um, It was actually 10,000 talents is the actual number if you go to the original Greek, uh, which we'll get to that in a minute. But he pleads with the king to have mercy on him, and the king relents and does have mercy on him. And the king forgives him of this enormous debt. And then later when he leaves uh, the king's presence and he bumps into a fellow servant, this fellow servant owed the original servant a small debt and asked for his forgiveness uh, of the debt. Uh, Eventually the uh, first servant says no, no, and um, treated him horribly and the word gets back to the king and the king is very angry because he dispensed mercy to the first servant and the first servant did not dispense mercy to the second servant. So there's the story in a nutshell. And what Jesus is trying to teach them and us today is that forgiveness is obligatory for the Christian. It is not an option. It's obligatory. It's mandatory. We must be a people that forgive. Why? Because Jesus paid our debt. So you could say um, he owns us. If you go back a little further, he made us. So the creator always owns the, the creation. But then because of our sin, we were ensnared by Satan, by the devil. And then the devil kind of took ownership of us because of our disobedience to God. And through that disobedience, we were now burdened with sin and death. The wage of sin is death always. How does this uh, debt to sin and death get repaid? Well, it had to be repaid by a divine person 
who took human flesh, and that was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus took our sins on his own flesh onto the cross, and it was on the cross that all the debt was canceled. The Father accepted this perfect offering of Jesus on the cross, which is made present at every Catholic Mass. At every Catholic Mass, we make present the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in an unbloody manner, uh, but it is made present. And what he said in the Last Supper, he said, do this in memory of me, as he's celebrating this, the newly converted Passover meal. So the old Passover meal, Jesus turned into the new Passover meal, which is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. They were celebrating the Passover, uh, which we call the Last Supper, but it would have been celebrated every year by the Jews. So every year Jesus and his friends would have celebrated this Passover meal. What are they doing? They're remembering what God did for them when he brought them out of bondage uh, to the Egyptians and uh, did the, the great miracles, the final miracle culminating in the death of the firstborn for all those who did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Are you seeing the symbolism here? This is all preordained by God, what he was doing, so we would recognize it uh, in the new covenant. So Jesus comes, and at the Last Supper, there were four cups of wine that would drink, uh, would be drunk during the, the course of the meal. And uh, after the third cup, uh, they get up and they end the meal and they leave and they go off to the garden. Jesus goes off to the garden to pray. Now, the equivalent of that for us would be, let's say we're celebrating mass, a very solemn holy mass. And after the homily, the priest would say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Mass has ended. Go in peace. And everybody would say, no, Father, it is not over. You didn't do the most important part, the, the, the consecration. Well, the fourth cup was called the cup of consummation, where it was completed. They didn't do that that night. Instead, he took the bread, broke it, and gave it to his friends, saying, this is my body given up for you. Do this in memory. And then he took the cup and did the same thing. This is my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant. So the old covenant is now over. The new covenant has come and will never pass away. And the new covenant is the holy sacrifice of the mass. So he takes uh, this very sacred, the most sacred day to the Jews, and he turns it into the, the new mass for the, for the Christian people. The, the culmination of the Jews has now come and closed in time. And now this new covenant goes forth, which will be eternal. When does he drink that fourth cup? He, you could say on the cross they offered him the, the wine, the bitter wine. Um, but really it's his own blood that he's pouring out through the wounds of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And that's the fourth cup, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And when it is done, what does he say? He says... Consumata est, the Latin, it means it is finished, it is complete, it has been fulfilled. That's the consummation, the fourth cup. Um, and there it is. The, the Jews would have known this more than people today because we don't really understand the Passover unless you research it. Um, but that that's what happened. Now, what's fascinating to me, 
and Scott Hahn for that matter. Scott Hahn is the one who told me this little insight, which he just had fairly recently, I think within the last six months, he was praying the rosary and this insight came to him. So in the Old Testament, we have a very specific um, guideline that was given to uh, us, you could say given to the Jews from the Lord, uh, describing how he wanted to be worshiped. And the worship was to be done uh, by a priest. It would become a Levitical priest. It had to be a Levitical priest. The, the worship had to be done in, in the temple or the tent before the temple. Uh, the people would bring their offerings, which would be animals, the animals of sacrifice, and there would be blood and an altar. So priest, temple, blood, altar. This was prescribed by God himself. And this is what the Jews did year after year after year uh, until the new covenant established by Jesus. And then what happens? Within 40 years or so, the temple is destroyed and never rebuilt again. So the Jews now have no way to offer this prescribed worship that God has given them. What do they do? They decide they're going to craft their own way to worship God, which is now going to be in a synagogue, not by a priest, it'll be a rabbi, um, it will be a reading of the scrolls, and that would be it. That's it. No priest, no temple, no altar, no blood. Completely changed. The Catholic Church, Jesus forms, and he does the same thing. There is a priest, there is an altar, there is blood, and there is the temple, which is the church. The church is the temple, the new temple. And uh, we, we are following the prescription ordained by God to the Jews and then transformed by Jesus for the Catholics. And this is what we do at Mass. It's an unbloody sacrifice, but truly the Lamb of God, Jesus, offers his body and blood to the Father and the bread and wine are substantially changed. The substance is changed into his body and blood, soul and divinity, living. It's an alive Jesus Christ. But what happened when the church started undergoing uh, crises, when there would be uh, large segments of the church breaking away, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation, and so on, things like this. So we've now got, I think, 30,000 Christian denominations in just America alone that are not Catholic. They're Christian, but not Catholic. They do not celebrate the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. What do they do? They took the model of the post-Temple Jews. They don't have a priest. They don't have blood. There is no sacrifice. There is no altar. Isn't it interesting that they followed the model, kind of the inert model, that the post-Temple Jews followed. They didn't follow the model of the Catholics. Why? They couldn't. If you're not in obedience to Rome and the Holy Father, there's no valid ordinations of men, therefore there can be no priests. So it's kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. Fascinating, really. But one day, we hope, all these, all these people, these denominations, Christian denominations, but also the Jews, would all be drawn into the fullness of the Catholic Church. Certainly in heaven, that's already happening. Did you know that everybody in heaven is Catholic? I didn't say that everybody uh, had to be Catholic on earth to get to heaven. I said everybody in heaven is Catholic because the fullness of the faith would be fully lived out 
visibly in heaven. So we would see Jesus as the Lamb of God, who is lighting all of heaven by his very presence. We would see the Blessed Virgin Mary and know that she was immaculately conceived and know that she had a virgin birth and was left completely intact, virgin before, during, and after. We would see the angels and the saints. We would know that the Eucharist truly is the body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, we would know that Jesus did appoint Peter to be the head of the church, and there's been a succession of popes down through the ages right up to this day. All of the teaching of the church, the assumption, uh, all of it, it would, it's all fully transparent and clear in heaven. And to get into heaven, you must embrace it all. There is not a section of heaven for Jews and a section in heaven for Muslims and a section in heaven for whoever. No, heaven is one universal body of Christ. And to enter into that body, you must come into the fullness of the truth of that body. And that's what happens when people go to heaven. Now, I don't know how it happens. For all I know, there's a big dunk tank at the door, and Peter is baptizing those who haven't been baptized and entering them in. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. We do know that the clearest and most consistent and surest way to heaven is through the sacraments. But that doesn't mean God can't work outside the sacraments. Certainly, before Jesus, there was no baptism. Do we think Joseph is in heaven? His father? Of course we do. Do we think David is in heaven? Moses? Abraham? Yes. Were they baptized? No. So certainly God can do what he has to do when he wants to do it. He's God. But we teach that we must have the sacraments if they're available. And that's what we teach. And by the way, he did say his parting words to man, to his best friends before he ascended into heaven, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. From the Messiah's mouth. So that's why we do it. That's why we encourage everyone to become a baptized uh, Catholic. So that's, that's the, the, the crux of the matter, going back to the forgiveness uh, quotient of this whole discussion. You know, when we I started with the Our Father today, and the reason I did that is because when we pray that Our Father, we are basically either recommending mercy for ourselves or recommending a horrible judgment. What do I mean by that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're asking for the things on earth to be in accordance with the way they do things in heaven. That hasn't happened. I have not seen that yet, that the whole earth would be living in God's will. I think there's a time in Revelation that speaks about a thousand year peace, but potentially that could be it. Maybe it's the ear of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. We've had 2000 years of the Father. Then we had 2000 years of uh, highlighting Jesus Christ, his son. We haven't yet had the Holy Spirit, so maybe there's going to be a 2,000-year particular focus on the Spirit, where the Spirit will come upon man and transform man into uh, men and women that would be living the perfectly the divine will of God. That would be amazing. That would be like heaven. Uh, so when we pray that, we're hoping we're fully conscious and aware that we, we wouldn't be given this prayer if it was not going to be achievable. Certainly it is achievable if God said, pray for this. But then it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Did you listen to those words? We're saying, God, forgive me the way I have forgiven my fellow man. Think about it. How well do you forgive? Are you quick to forgive or do you hold on? Do you hold on to the unforgiveness and let it fester? and poison your heart, because that's what's happening.
when we hold on to unforgiveness, we are holding on to a death. And it's our own death. It's a choking off of the grace of God in our heart and soul. For some odd reason, people think when I when I refuse to forgive somebody, you are basically drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That does not happen. It's killing you. In fact, many times the people who you're angry with have no idea you're even angry with them. They, they, they didn't understand what they did wrong. Some of the time, some of the times they certainly know what they did wrong. So we have to be a people that are quick to forgive because that's what Jesus did. And we have to be a people that are quick to forgive because we want nothing to bar us from going to heaven, right? Right. So people will tell me, people think often that forgiveness is uh, a personal process, a journey towards being healed of the wound we've received. That is not true. It's not a journey or a personal process. It is a transaction. It is a transaction that begins with the person who is harmed, the victim. This is a decision of the will for mercy to be dispensed to the perpetrator of the crime that hurt you. That's what it is. Now, that's why so many people don't like that. So many people don't like that. They, they don't want to dispense the mercy. They want justice. Justice will come. You know, God will have his justice. But if you want to keep your place in heaven, you must forgive. You must dispense the mercy. What did Jesus do on the cross? This is what he did on the cross. I mean, this is the bar, the very high bar Jesus set for us on the cross. Many people say, Father, I am in too much pain to forgive. I'm still angry. I can't forgive if I'm still angry. Wrong! You can forgive in pain, in suffering, in anger. You can, you can forgive. It's a decision of the will. You have a will, you have an intellect, you can use them. This is what makes us like God. The image and likeness of God is through our intellect and our will. Use them, do the work. Jesus felt no worse throughout his entire life than he did on the cross. That was the most pain and suffering he ever endured throughout his entire life. He was physically in pain, horrible pain, probably had dislocated shoulders, all of those lashings, some mystics say 4,000 welts and wounds, open wounds in his body, the sweat and the salt and the sweats going into those wounds, creating more pain, um, the nails through the hands and feet, the, the crowning of thorns. They weren't like little rosebush thorns. These are thorns that were like two, three inches that were piercing through his skin, coming out the other sides of the skin, just all over him. Then he had the emotional pain of seeing his very people, his children, you could say, uh, hating him, blaspheming him, spitting on him, mocking him, and the emotional trauma of watching his mother suffer, watching him die. That might have been the worst pain of all. So you put it all into a basket, and this is the worst he ever felt in his entire life. And what does he do? He chooses to forgive. He exercised his will. Father, forgive them. Then he gives the father, his father and our father, an excuse. For they know not what they do. He gives an excuse as well. He also, in his pain and suffering, is thinking about his mother. Who's going to take care of her? And he gives her to John. This man is acting with a deliberateness 
he knew what he had to do. He knew he had a finite amount of time to get it done, and he did it all. Nothing was left undone on that cross. This is why we have to forgive too, because you're part of the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. Jesus is the head, we are the body. So we have a power. Did you know you had a power? There's a great power in forgiveness. Oh, you can't imagine the things that can happen when you forgive. I had, a, I can't even go into it, we don't have time. But one another day I'll tell you about a story of, of when I had to forgive something that was very big and it had profound repercussions in, it, in the most wonderful way. But the power is that when Jesus uh, forgave on the cross, and there is a, um, a pain that we experience from being hurt by somebody, uh, that pain can be offered to Jesus on the cross and he can convert the pain to grace to go save souls. So your pain can be used to save souls from perishing eternally. Imagine that, that's power. That's the greatest power possible. I think something else we don't often think about uh, when it comes to forgiveness is uh, the fact that God's ways are far above our ways. I mean, so far above, we can't imagine, but we know it because he tells us, my ways are not like your ways. He uses the victim to heal the perp, the perpetrator of the crime. So not unlike us, we would never do this. So when you keep taking, when you have a, a, a memory of a painful event that happened to you, you simply say, Lord, I bring you this person who hurt me and I'm very upset with them for doing it, but I'm choosing to forgive them and I ask you to forgive them. I ask you to bless them, not just forgive them now, bless them and heal them so they can become the saints you made them to be so they can get home to heaven. You pray that prayer every time you have a painful memory and eventually the prayers will take root, the person will be healed, and you will be healed. It's a two-for-one deal. And the person being healed will be transformed and then will be less likely to hurt somebody again. If we do this with everybody, if everybody on the world, in the whole planet, did this prayer every time they got hurt, eventually everybody would be transformed through these, the power of this prayer, of the mystical body. The problem is not everybody's part of the mystical body of Christ, and even the people in the mystical body aren't aware of this way to pray, and even the ones that are aware of it don't always do it because of our stubborn pride, right? It's our stubborn pride that we don't want to let something go. We'd rather hold on to it and be bitter. Sadly, that's true, but <clears throat> trust me, there's an, an enormous amount of grace that's given right after we are hurt by somebody to forgive. It's like an hourglass and the sands of the hourglass go down and down and down and down and down. And the longer you wait to forgive, the harder it becomes because there's less grace, simply the way it is. So be somebody who forgives quickly and judges slowly. Don't judge at all. Maybe uh, this would be your prayer. If, if you have trouble with this, ask for the grace because everything's a gift. Everything is a gift. You could just say, Father, I'm, I'm so bad at forgiving people and I hold on to my anger and I hold on to my unforgiveness. Please help me to let it go. Imagine this. Imagine, you know, sometimes we have to visually see things to help it happen. So you can close your eyes and imagine this hurt you have is this big, ugly blob of whatever you want to call it. But it's it's filthy and it's 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 basically on your back. And you could you could take it off your back and put it 
Jesus and say, Lord, I'm giving this to you today as a gift. Please take it from me. He would love to take this from you. He would love to take this gift from you, your unforgiveness and your hard heart. And then he takes it and he will transform it into a beautiful, like, say like a rainbow of grace that will go out and uh, infiltrate the whole world with blessings and, and that will be turned into glory that goes back to him. Isn't that amazing? He can do it. He can do anything. This is what he wants from us today, to let go of our hard hearts, to let go of our unforgiveness and to give them to him as a gift so he can transform them into grace. And the grace will abound around the world and go back to him as glory. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Father Dan signing out. Mm -hmm.